The three vicars, Reverends Richard Coles, Kate Botley and Giles Fraser, talk about Christmas. This is part of a series where we shall hear one episode for each Sunday in Advent. I wish it could be Christmas every day. Now that's not a phrase that drops very commonly from the lips of clergy towards the end of the year. I'm joined by two colleagues, by the Reverend Kate Botley and the Reverend Cannon. Giles Fraser. All of us have form when it comes to Christmas, but I'm wondering, Kate, there's something about you that suggests to me that a pair of novelty antlers would work <laughs> for you. Do you love Christmas? Um, oh, there was too much of a pause there, really, wasn't there, to not tell the truth. Um, no. Oh, I know. Okay, let me let me let me explain. I love Christmas. I love the actual day itself because I don't I don't know about you two, but actually by Christmas it's all done. You know, Christmas Day after about eleven o'clock or so, you've got nothing else unless you've got a church that is dedicated to St Stephen. Yeah. So you can pretty much kick back and relax. Or that Christmas Day is on a Saturday, which, which is the worst happen. thing in the world yeah. for a clergy person. I love Christmas. What I find really tricky is that. We peak too soon, as far as I'm concerned. So, when as clergy, you, say we, you mean church? No, I don't. I mean those people that were here to serve. Um, yeah, I, so, for me, <laughs> the thing that really gets me. Okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna really nail this down. I don't like people to take the Christmas trees down on Boxing Day. That's what upsets me. Would you last till Candlemas? Yeah. Absolutely, till February. Definitely. You? When's the greenery? Do you have the greenery up to your job? Yeah, no, no. I like, I like, I love the Christmas tree. So about three years ago, I asked my daughter and kids if they would decorate the Christmas tree. And it was a big mistake because my daughter was at Goldsmiths and Fine Art College, <laughs> and so she decided, and I let them do it in the day. And I came back. Uh, my daughter had spray painted tampons and had used those as Christmas decorations. And when the ladies of the parish came in to look at the vicar's Christmas tree, it took some explanation. It invites a very interesting parish discussion on the virgin birth, perhaps, doesn't it? (laughs) I love Christmas. I sort of even love secular Christmas. I have to say, I sort of poo-poo it a bit. I love the whole mood and the sort of drawing in, wintry type of thing, and the way that's sort of taken up. Do you have hooker in Newington butts? That sort of thing, yeah, we like fire. And when I was at St Paul's, Christmas was sort of an industrial thing. You know, you had to do 30 carol services, and I was absolutely sick of it by the end of it. But the great thing about where I am now is that I only have a few carol services, so I absolutely love them. Well, this is exactly my point. It's actually not Christmas that's the problem, is it? It's the run-up to it. You know, when it comes to the Dibley episode where she has eight Christmas dinners in a day, that, as far as I'm concerned, is a documentary. It's not a drama. I remember on my fourth Christmas dinner one one week, because the schools all have their Christmas dinners on the same day. So if you've got a few schools in your parish, you end up having to have four Christmas dinners. That's actually true. And there's only so much enthusiasm you can muster for away in a manger again, right? So you sat next to somebody who's going, oh, isn't it lovely? No, it's hideous. I I mean, I can find I'm sort of conflicted about it because on the one hand, I was in a church before finding it in Knightsbridge. Again, we had 30 carol services. And to be honest, Heart the Herald Angels sing two goes is plenty for me. 
30 goes is an awful... Are you having a bash at the desk camp, Father? No, I've, I have a theory about that. You know how the spider plants and cockroaches are the only things that survive a nuclear explosion? <laughs> I think the desk camp to a little town of Bethlehem <laughs> as well. There is something, isn't there, about Midnight Mass, a little town of Bethlehem, and people, creaky old sopranos, remembering from childhood the desk camp. I, I really like it. I really like that, because I can't do the desk camp. So I try really hard to do it, just so that people... And it's turn. heresy, by the way, that hymn. Shouldn't be allowed. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead, Godhead see. see. It's not a veiling, it's the real thing. He's a person. Oop, Don't... sixpence in Giles. Yeah, I know, so it's like, <laughs> I, that, that, we should ban that hymn Are for you, heresy. You don't preach that Christmas sermon, which poo-poo's Father Christmas, do you? But, no, I don't. I do have the sort of, you know, we all have a number of different Christmas sermons, but they all sort of converge <laughs> on one. And my Christmas sermon usually involves finding someone in the congregation with a baby. Yeah, I do that one. That and makes then, them cry every time. And you get so the baby. Obvious. So obvious. <laughs> makes them cry every <laughs> single time. Do you do, oh, don't yeah. you? The course. baby at the back of the carol service, the people that you never see have just had a baby, so they brought the baby for Christmas yeah, for the first... Right. And you go to the back and you go, halfway through this sermon, I'm going to come over and knit your baby. Is that all right? And they go, yeah, that's fine. So you stand at the front and you go, you know, what is it really all about? You know, is it about the tree? Is it about the presents? Is it about the... And they go, no. It's about this. And you walk down the silent church down the aisle, collect the baby and bring it to the front and hold it. And there's not a dry eye in the house. And you say, this is what God looks like. (laughs) That's it. That's what you do. (laughs) Just crank it up. Just... I don't let them leave church till they've cried. That's how it works. I don't think my midnight mass sermon is preached until I've talked about the child that is born to die. <laughs> I've got a Christmas jumper with that on. I've got a picture of the nativity on and it says, spoiler alert, he dies. It's my favourite. <laughs>
Elaine Brown is an author and member of Pilochri Baptist Church. Elaine has produced a series of talks for us, and today her title is Under His Wings, based on Psalm 91, verse 4. He will cover you with his feathers, he will shelter you with his wings. Our family kept a few chickens when I was a child. We grew fond of them, giving each a name, and they became very tame. Best of all, those hens produced fluffy yellow chicks, which gave us even more fun. Sometimes a car came up our drive, close to where the chickens freely pecked and scratched. Immediately the mother hen would call her brood, and they'd dash to safety under her wings. It's a picture which still stays with me, and it's beautifully expressed in this verse from Psalm 91. He will cover you with his feathers, he will shelter you with his wings. What safer place could there be than the shelter of God's wings, both for now and for all the times to come? With concern, Jesus urged us not to miss out on such vital security. He said, How many times have I wanted to put my arms round you as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you wouldn't let me? Those are solemn words to remember. And a brief prayer. Lord, help us to learn from this word picture and to find our greatest security in belonging to you.
In Alice in Wonderland, Alice asked the cat, would you tell me please which way I ought to go from here? And the cat replied, that depends where you're wanting to go. Oh, said Alice, I don't care very much. To which the cat replied, then it doesn't matter which way you go. But I want to go somewhere, said Alice. Typical female, you know. I want to go somewhere, she protested. And the cat answered with wisdom and insight. Oh, are you sure to do that? If you don't care much where you go, be sure you will go somewhere and be sure it will not matter much which road you take. Which road do you take? There are plenty of roads to nowhere. Plenty of dead ends. Roads which promise much, but when they are travelled and when they peter out with any sense of achievement or satisfaction, you know that you have wasted your energy and your time. The message to all of us from Jesus, come, follow me. You 
is a psychotherapist at Broadmoor Hospital. Gwen talks to Michael Barclay about treating her patients with group therapy and also mindfulness training, particularly using music. She also explains how her Christian faith helps in her work. When people ask Gwen Adshead what she does for a living, she sometimes tells them she's a florist because she simply can't face another conversation about why she's devoted her life to working with, in quotes, monsters. Gwen has spent 30 years as a psychiatrist and as a pioneering forensic psychotherapist working at Broadmoor Hospital in Berkshire with some of society's most violent and vilified offenders. The author of more than a 100 academic books and papers, she recently co-wrote a best-selling book with her friend Eileen Horn for a more general audience. The Devil You Know takes the reader into the therapy room at Broadmoor to try to understand these people, often labelled as monstrous, including serial killers, stalkers and child sex offenders. Ten years ago, you trained in mindfulness. Uh, How do you use that in your work? Well, I came to mindfulness-based cognitive therapy because I was interested in the research that shows how psychological therapies work. And mindfulness-based cognitive therapy is one of the few psychological therapies that's been subjected to very intense empirical study of really good quality. And it's been shown particularly to be useful for people with chronic and recurrent depression. And at that time, when I was interested in it, I myself had been struggling with chronic recurrent depression. So I was interested in the therapy that had been shown to be helpful. So I went off and trained in the mindfulness-based cognitive therapy in Oxford with the wonderful professor Mark Williams. And what that introduced me to is a whole domain of experience coming from two or three thousand years ago from a Buddhist tradition, but also from a contemplative tradition within the Western Christian tradition. So putting those two things together then meant that I came back to music 
in a different way and its meditative components and that issue that sense perhaps more of paying attention the way that we focus on the musical notes and the construction of music how the music then fits together and how when you sing particularly in a choir you have to be so focused I love that moment of standing in choir where I know the piece off by heart and I'm just looking at the conductor that's all I'm doing and letting that music come come into my ears and come out of my mouth well this next music presumably would be a very good example of that yes this is sure on this shining light by Lauridson I've not sung it myself but I've listened to it many times and I think it is a beautiful example of choral music and with a meditative quality It is astounding, isn't it? It was Mark Williams who introduced me to Lauridson. I'd not known his work before, and Mark told me that they often use his music in order to induce moods. When you're studying people's moods and their thoughts when feelings, he'd experience using Lauridson to induce moods, which goes back to the power of music to induce emotions that you didn't know you had before that music started. Sure on this shining night, the third of Morton Lauridson's Nocturnes, setting James Agee's poem. We heard Nicole Matt conducting the Chamber Choir of Europe with the composer at the piano. It's interesting how much ritual and patterns are important to us. Very much so. And it made me think when we were talking now about detective fiction is that there's something about detective fiction that's about bringing order out of chaos and of course these rituals that we're talking about also help us I think to feel a kind of psychological security given that we're faced with all sorts of things in every 24 hours we don't know what lies ahead we might have to face all sorts of things and I think those kind of rituals help us to feel a bit more centred and balanced. Singing clearly is a way of uh, letting your hair down in a way and relaxing. Um, And in fact, the next piece is one I know that you have sung and uh, love singing. I do. I do. And I'm particularly grateful to the choir master who I sang with most recently, who sadly, very sadly, and too early died a few years ago. Um, his name was David Dennis, and he was a very talented musician, pianist, organist, and arranger of music. One of those people who are unfairly talented, I think. Um, we lost a great choir master when he died. And uh, we sang this uh, Orlando Gibbons, Drop, Drop, Slow Tears, and he did a beautiful arrangement of it, which I'm sorry not to be able to share with everybody. But it is a most beautiful piece, and I, again, think Orlando Gibbons is one of the most beautiful composers of music. Drop, drop, slow. 
Drop, Drop, Slow Tears by Orlando Gibbons, Paul McCreech, directing the Gabrielli Consort. Why do you think, and I, I can honestly tell you that from over a thousand programmes, people do focus on music that is sad. Uh, you know, whether it's the Purcell, Dido's Lament, whatever, these Strauss Fuller songs. Why do we as human beings want music that in a way disturbs us? Well, that's a really interesting question. And I don't think I've ever been asked that question before. But my immediate thought is that we know that life has to come to an end, that our lives are like a great play, a great novel or a great symphony, and they must come to an end. And there is a kind of bittersweet sadness about that, a poignancy about the beauty of our lives, about everything that we experience. It puts us in touch with that bittersweetness and actually gives us a way to get used to it and prepare ourselves. Do you get succour from religious belief? I'm a person of faith, yeah, very much so. Does that inform your work? Yes, I would say so. It isn't true for everybody, I think, but for me, um, being a practising Christian has been really important and actually helped me to do the work that I do. And probably being happy and optimistic must be important? Well, for me, I guess that's where the faith comes in. Because the faith is not so much, and particularly the Christian faith, is not so much about being happy all the time, but more about understanding that there is something beyond our everyday happiness and sadness, that there is a kind of meaning to our experience and that also our, that meaning is found in relationships, in understanding and getting close to the hearts and minds of others and that great web of connection between us. And I've certainly found that the, the practice of the Christian faith has also enabled me to feel more compassionate, I think, towards evil states of mind as well as the enjoyment of happiness and goodness. I wonder as I wander out under the sky Why Jesus the
charge of Soundwaves Radio in Sussex. Ian has produced a series of short thoughts, one of which he shares with us now. I don't know about you, but I know for myself there's many times that I feel that I'm just no good at anything, that other people can do masses of things that I can't, and the things I can do, well, other people can do them just as well, if not better. And I find myself getting into a cycle of Well, almost despair. I came across this recently. A great deal of personal dissatisfaction and discontent sets in when we think poorly of ourselves because we do not feel accepted by others. We are most miserable when we doubt ourselves and think we are inadequate. So, when I start feeling worthless, I must remember that Jesus came to earth to die for me. So I can't be that unimportant, now can I? There's a rich man worth more than a fallen A stranger worth less than a friend There's a baby worth more than an old man Your beginning worth more than your end There's a president worth more than his assassin Does your value decrease with your crime? Like when Christ took the place of Barabbas Would you say he was wasting his time? Well, how much do you think you are worth, boy? Would anyone stand up and say Would you say that a man is worth nothing? Until someone is willing to pay I suppose that you think that you matter Well, how much do you matter to whom? It's much easier at night when with friends and bright lights Than much later alone in your room Do you think they'll miss one in a billion? When you finish this old human race Does it really make much of a difference When your friends have forgotten your face Well, how much do you think you are worth, boy? Would anyone stand up and say Would you say that a man is worth nothing Until someone is willing to pay If you heard that your life had been valued That a price had been paid on the nail Would you ask what was traded How much and who paid it Who was he and what was his name If you heard that his name was called Jesus Would you say 
that the price was too dear. Held to the cross, not by nails, but by love. It was you who broke his heart, not the spear. Would you say you are worth what it cost him? You say no, but the price stays the same. If it don't make you cry, laugh it off, pass it by. But just remember the day when you throw it away. And he paid what he thought you were. How much do you think he is worth, boy? Will anyone stand up and say... Tell me what are you willing to give him In return for the price that he paid 